You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. COVID-19 significantly increased remote working, and the pandemic is now a favorite lure in the fishing tackle of both intelligence services and criminal gangs. Russian trolling has been offshored, setting up shop in Ghana and Nigeria for running influence operations against the U.S. Microsoft issues an out-of-band patch. Reporters Without Borders publishes its list of digital predators. And the Senate doesn't renew U.S. domestic surveillance authorities. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 13th, 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic is generating two immediate security effects. First, it's dramatically increased the incidence of telework, and this, as the Washington Post and others point out, brings with it an expanded opportunity for cyber attack and a relatively unfamiliar set of security challenges. Some service providers who provide the infrastructure necessary for remote work, Verizon among them, are reassuring their customers that they're prepared to help them accommodate the surge in demand that's accompanied the pandemic. Other outfits are offering free remote access and security services to organizations whose IT and security resources are being stressed by coronavirus remote work pressure. Second, both criminals and nation-state intelligence services are exploiting public concern about the pandemic to send phishing emails. ZDNet offers a summary of Russian, Chinese, and North Korean organizations using coronavirus-themed vectors to install malware in their targets. Fortinet, Sophos, Proofpoint, Before, and Recorded Future are among the security firms who've been tracking criminal activity related to the coronavirus. Recorded Future reports that many criminal attacks arrive as convincing spoofs of trusted sources— like the World Health Organization and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. The researchers have also seen a surge in the registration of domain names that suggest a connection to the disease. And these, of course, lend themselves to use in fishing and waterholing campaigns. Bloomberg Quint offers some examples of the fish bait. Here's one sample which researchers at BAE provided. Please kindly download the updated attachment for your knowledge. Please go through the cases to avoid potential hazards. Those of you who are accomplished textual critics of spam will recognize that the sample bears the familiar textual stigmata of the genre, the repetition of an ingratiating please, the appearance of the adjective kindly, the high-minded admonition for your knowledge, the urgency hinted at by the adjective updated, and, of course, the eccentric capitalization of potential and potential hazard. You can't hear the capital P, of course, but I can see it and take it straight from me. It is there in all its typographic glory. And ransomware gangs are hitting public health agencies at a time when the availability of their services and information are in high demand. Mother Jones describes one such attack in Illinois. 
The Champaign-Urbana Public Health District, which serves more than 200,000 people in the central part of the state, was hit Thursday morning with NetWalker ransomware, which the News Gazette says is a relatively little-known strain. The site is expected to be down for at least two weeks, and this is obviously an inconvenient time for it to be out of service. The criminal activity is by no means confined to American targets or the English language. It's showing the usual global opportunism and has been found in many countries around the world. It would be nice if we could always rely on clumsy prose to betray fishing, but unfortunately even criminals can become better writers, perhaps by investing in some online tools like Grammarly. And government trolls are even better than hoods at slinging the lingo. The St. Petersburg troll farms, for example, have long shown a slick facility with American English that does their language teachers credit. They've also apparently expanded overseas. Russian trolling has been offshored, in part at least, to operators in Ghana and Nigeria, CNN reports. Researchers at Clemson University informed CNN's investigation. They say it's election season influence and it's very much in the Russian style, disruptive and racially themed. And CNN says some of the operators, many of them Ghanan or Nigerian, tell them that, sure, they're working for Russia. A number of the trolls are organized by a front organization, Eliminating Barriers for the Liberation of Africa, or EBLA for short. Russian oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin, sometimes referred to as Putin's chef and regarded as the organizing spirit behind St. Petersburg's Internet Research Agency, is believed to be behind EBLA too, but he didn't respond to CNN's request for comment. This week, according to The Hill, several members of the U.S. Congress called on the European Union to sanction Mr. Prigozhin for his activities. Microsoft yesterday issued an out-of-band patch for a vulnerability hinted at but not addressed on Patch Tuesday. It fixes a server remote code execution issue in the way Microsoft's server message block 3.1.1 protocol handles certain requests. Reporters Without Borders has published its selection of bad cyber actors, digital predators it calls them. These range from companies to gangs to government agencies to intelligence services, to semi-official political units. InfoSecurity magazine notes the announcement was made in conjunction with yesterday's World Day Against Cyber Censorship. Reporters Without Borders divides the bad action into four categories. Harassment, state censorship, disinformation, and spying or surveillance. Some of the actors are state intelligence services and their contractors. These are Russian, Iranian, Algerian, Venezuelan, Saudi, Egyptian, and Chinese agencies. Others are political groups, often affiliated with current incumbents, and some represent organized criminal groups, like the Mexican drug cartels. The companies mentioned in dispatches tend to be either lawful intercept vendors or exploit brokers, whose wares, Reporters Without Borders say, have found their way into the hands of repressive regimes. The offenses alleged against them fall into the fourth category, spying or surveillance. The U.S. Senate did not pass the revisions to domestic surveillance authorities and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act the House sent it earlier this week. The measure did have bipartisan support in both houses, but it faced significant opposition as well. The opponents, in general, thought the measure did not go far enough in reforming FISA and domestic surveillance. The domestic surveillance program, effectively dormant since NSA shelved its implementation early last year, and generally regarded by observers as having seen relatively indifferent success, will thus sunset over the weekend. 
Congress will have an opportunity to revisit the issues when it returns from its recess. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Josiah Dykstra. He's a technical fellow in cybersecurity at the National Security Agency. His work at NSA has included penetration testing, malware analysis, as well as network operations and digital forensics for cloud computing environments. He's a popular speaker at events like RSA and Black Hat and author of the book Essential Cybersecurity Science. Josiah Dykstra joined us in our studios. In October, NSA launched this new organization called the Cybersecurity Directorate. And the goal of this organization is to prevent and eradicate cyber threats to national security systems, including the Department of Defense networks and the defense industrial base, who supports everything that we do in national security. One of the goals for this organization is to collaborate with industry and to put out public guidance outside of our secure facilities that can help both DOD and the general public be more secure online. Cloud computing is something that, as you might expect, is a big part of the Department of Defense. NSA uses a lot of cloud computing. And as people consider and adopt more of these cloud services, we wanted to make sure they were doing so considering the appropriate risks. And so we undertook this document that we put out about a month ago to help people understand that, yes, cloud is a very powerful, useful capability, and we encourage people to use it. 
And at the same time, we want to make sure they consider the risks and mitigate those appropriately when they go to implement. Well, let's walk through some of the things that the document covers here. Take us through uh, what are you trying to, uh, to get across to people? So there's four main areas of vulnerabilities that we want people to consider as they, go, as they move to the cloud. And these are vendor agnostic. It doesn't matter which cloud service you're using. And they're not in response to any particular threat, but it is threat informed. So all the things that we see in our world helped us put together this document. I'll also say that we collaborated with industry in making sure that we were talking about the right things in the appropriate ways to help people be the most effective that they could be. Mm. So the four areas that we highlight that we want people to consider are misconfigurations in their cloud services, the implementation of good access controls, the situation of shared tenancy in cloud services, and supply chain vulnerabilities. Now, the first two are definitely the most common. Mm. Misconfigurations and access controls gets a lot of people into trouble, and it has led to lots of data breaches. And we hear lots of stories of uh, open S3 buckets, uh, misconfiguration errors. Yes, they show up in the press all the time. It's very unfortunate because it's an easy, comparatively easy thing to fix. Mm. So those are that we wanted to highlight first and foremost. The other thing that I'll say is I think that's not only a technical problem, but a human problem, Um, as many things are in technology. Having the appropriate training for your technical people is a very important way to mitigate those misconfigurations. One of the things that you touch on here is that notion of, of defense in depth, of having uh, you know, multiple layers uh, to protect against these sorts of things. Defense in depth is a long-time concept in the Department of Defense. We've talked about this for decades. Cloud computing is just a new technology that applies the same or d- needs the same concepts. And so whether it's different layers of technological control or different sort of trade-offs between the cloud provider and the cloud consumer— all of those same principles apply in cloud computing. So uh, of the things that you, you you listed at the outset here, I think the one that uh, that I probably feel like I know the least amount about is the shared tenancy vulnerabilities. Can you describe to us what's going on with that one? Yes. I will start by saying that this is a very sophisticated kind of attack and not as prevalent as things like misconfigurations. Mm. That being said, it is a very real um, vulnerability that people adopting cloud need to think about. What shared tenancy means is in many cloud services, the data that you have and the processes that you run sometimes execute on the same physical machine or on the same infrastructure of the cloud provider. And that is a risk area because other people on those shared resources have at least the potential uh, of accessing your data in a malicious kind of way. Hmm. Generally, the way clouds are implemented this is very secure. The cloud vendors are very motivated to try and make sure that tenants can't interact with each other. But the risk is a possibility, and so we want to make sure people understand that. What are the take-homes here in in terms of the message that uh, NSA wants to get out to people for best practices for securing their cloud infrastructures? What are the messages that, that you really think are important here? So first, I think cloud is a very useful and powerful capability. There's no reason that we think you should avoid it, uh, but we just want to make sure that it is risk-informed decision-making. Whether you're at the top making sort of corporate strategic choices or at the bottom doing technical implementation, we want to make sure you don't forget about uh, some of the very prevalent and common uh, mistakes that can be made and the vulnerabilities that can rise that are different in cloud than if you just have servers in your basement. 
And so as you go about thinking about, should I pick vendor A or B? Should we put this sensitive data in the cloud or not? How should we do encryption? These are the things we want to make sure every consumer is thinking about in their adoption. You know, it's interesting to me as um, as NSA has uh, has started this initiative uh, with more communications with the public, with uh, being more uh, uh, more outreach with with documents and publications like this. I think a document like this coming from the agency has a certain amount of uh, gravitas, if you will, uh, demands a certain amount of attention that perhaps coming from other organizations it, it might not have. There are definitely many people doing cloud security guidance, vendors, uh, other parts of the government. We did think it was important for us to lend our weight behind this because it is a very important problem. And it's the first of many. In fact, NSA has been doing collaborations a little bit more behind the scenes for quite a while. The fact that we've now begun to do them very publicly is an acknowledgement that the threats are worse, that other people have important uh, insights that we need to collaborate with them on. And so this is the first, I hope, of very many that NSA will release. And I would say watch our website and our social media uh, for the next upcoming ones. Our thanks to Josiah Dykstra from the National Security Agency for joining us. And joining me once again is Tom Etheridge. He's the VP of Services at CrowdStrike. Uh, Tom, it's always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to get some insights from you with the things that you and your team at CrowdStrike are seeing when it comes to ransomware and how that is impacting your clients around the world. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. Great to be back. The uh, number of ransomware cases that we saw last year increased substantially. About 36% of our overall responses last year were what we call business disruption type events. Certainly looking at metrics for this type of uh, event, most people focus on the actual ransomware payment and the cost that that has on the organization. And one of the things I think is important to talk about is the unknown costs or looking at the cost of ransomware in aggregate across the market. That's something that's really important to be discussing. Hmm. Well, let's dig into that. How do you measure those things? One thing that we try to look at is what are the costs to businesses from downtime? What are the costs uh, in terms of communities uh, and municipal government organizations and school districts that are unable to function for a period of time? What is the downstream impact from being out of business for a period of time create for the community, for citizens of a particular community or students at a particular school district. And those are really hard costs to aggregate and think about. But overall, these things need to be factored in to ransomware uh, in particular. And when you do that, you, you start to increasingly think that this is more of a national security issue than something localized to a particular school district or small business. Yeah, it's an interesting insight. I mean, it makes me wonder if, if you, you can do that calculation. You know, let's say even though we're doing regular backups and so we know that we're covered in terms of that, but at some point somebody has to do the math to figure out how long is that restoration going to take us? Absolutely. Um, you know, some companies we know for sure have gone out of business due to uh, impact from a ransomware event. There's certainly public reporting around uh, probably the largest and more well-known uh, ransomware outbreak with the uh, city of Baltimore. And the fact that 
in that particular ransomware case, certain real estate deals were put on hold because the city could not process title transfers or didn't have the insight into know whether or not liens on uh, properties had been paid off. Those types of impacts really are, although they're difficult to manage, certainly something that organizations should take into account when they're looking at the overall impact of ransomware. And the, the one thing that's intriguing as well is what is this going to do to the municipal bond market? Hmm. Still to be determined, but you know, as trust might be eroding in many state and local organizations where they just are unable to prevent these types of attacks, there may be some downstream impacts over time to the municipal bond market and the confidence that the stakeholders have in that space. You mentioned uh, the possibility that this could be considered a national security issue. Uh, In your mind, how would uh, a national response play out? What would it look like? One, I I think, again, getting better reporting on uh, the effects of ransomware in the aggregate, not just looking at it from a ransomware payment perspective, but maybe thinking about some of these downstream impacts or, you know, tangential impacts of cost by uh, organizations being hit uh, by ransomware, whether organizations going out of business, uh, records being lost, uh, services unable to be provided or delivered, looking at what kind of public policy uh, that can be discussed or implemented to draw attention to the issue. And then, again, providing better tools and expertise at the state and municipal level so that many of these organizations that do not have the funding Uh, in place or lack the critical expertise and resources to respond to these events, have backups uh, off-site that can be leveraged, have the kind of technology input to work on better networking infrastructure, better uh, tooling uh, to be able to detect and prevent these types of attacks from happening. Those are the things that organizations need to be paying attention to. Hmm. All right. Well, Tom Etheridge, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.